If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It was the turkey that first got the janitor thinking murder. On Thanksgiving Day in 1849, the janitor had a succulent bird sitting on his kitchen table. Yet here he was, hacking with a hatchet at the brick wall of a latrine in the basement of Harvard Medical School. He wanted to be at home feasting, but he could not eat with all those clues nipping at his conscience. A Harvard grandee had gone missing and the janitor thought he knew where. Unfortunately, there were five layers of brick to the vaults, and a hatchet just wasn't the right tool. So the janitor quit after 90 minutes, cold and hungry. The next morning, he dropped by a local foundry to borrow a hammer, a better chisel, and a crowbar to start working on a new water main, he claimed. Then it was down to the latrine again. Several hours later, he finally opened a hole in the innermost layer of brick. He held his lantern up, peering into the darkness. But a draft kicked up and almost snuffed the flame. You can imagine the smells bursting forth as well. Still, the janitor widened the hole and tried again, shielding the lantern as he reached it inside. It was a moment right out of Edgar Allan Poe. He saw mostly the nasty things you'd expect to see in a latrine. But as his eyes adjusted to the gloom, he noticed one additional thing. In the center of the pit, glowing a dull white, sat a human pelvis. The only question was, whose pelvis was it? After all, this was a medical school. There were corpses everywhere. So was it the missing Harvard grandee? Or was it the body of someone else that had met an equally wicked end? From the Science History Institute, this is Sam Keen and the Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciencey history podcast, where footnotes become the real story.
the janitor was hardly alone in obsessing over the missing Harvard grandee. People in Cambridge, Massachusetts, talked about little else that November. Dr. George Parkman, 60 years old, tall, impossibly skinny, had stopped by a grocery store one Friday afternoon to purchase sugar and butter. He also asked the grocer to hold on to a treat for his invalid daughter, a head of lettuce, a delicacy in November. Parkman told the grocer he had an appointment to keep and would be back in a minute. But he never returned. Parkman was a Harvard alum and a fabulously wealthy real estate mogul. He actually donated the land on which Harvard's squat, three-story medical building sat. Less nobly, Parkman owned several tenement slums and was a stickler about rent. He also made a killing as a loan shark, hounding his debtors for every last cent, especially if they had crossed him. And Dr. John White Webster had crossed him. Dr. Webster, aged 56, was something of a hellion. He had graduated from Harvard Medical School and then did a residency in London, where he loved to attend public hangings. Eventually, Webster ended up teaching chemistry at Harvard Med. His lab sat in the medical building's basement. His lectures often featured explosive pyrotechnics, and he loved whipping up laughing gas to get his students hot. But if Webster had given up working as a doctor, he was still addicted to the doctor lifestyle. The typical Harvard professor then was independently wealthy and worth around $75,000, around $2.3 million today. Some professors' mansions were so lavish that they appeared on local tourist maps so people could walk by and gawk at them. In comparison, Webster's salary was just $1,200 a year, less than $40,000 today. But Webster tried to keep up a doctor's lifestyle, buying a six-bedroom house and entertaining lavishly with oysters and wine. Before long, he and his family had run through all his savings. At one point, he bounced a $9 check. Rather than economize, Webster approached George Parkman for several loans. This proved to be a bad idea. Webster had no financial discipline, and he finally had to mortgage a beloved collection of minerals and gems to Parkman as collateral. People around town began whispering about Webster's debts, which infuriated him. And by the fall of 1849, Parkman was pestering Webster for his money back. The sheriff even threatened to repossess Webster's furniture. Webster grew desperate to buy time. So he went behind Parkman's back and mortgaged his beloved mineral collection to two other creditors. Unfortunately, one of those creditors was Parkman's brother-in-law, who informed Parkman of the double dealing. The news made Parkman livid, and he eventually confronted Webster in the basement of the medical school. Pay me or else, he demanded. Both men lost their tempers, and the building's janitor overheard them screaming. Webster finally promised to scrape together $483 and have it ready the Friday before Thanksgiving. When that Friday came, Parkman made arrangements with the grocer about the butter and the sugar and the lettuce, and then marched over to collect from Webster. Webster later told the police that Parkman snatched up the $483 without a word and hurried off. And that is when the mystery started, because no one ever saw George Parkman again. 
Parkman was pretty OCD in his habits. So when he did not turn up for dinner that night, his family began to fret. By the next morning, they were panicked. Parkman had a bad habit of carrying too much cash around after collecting debts. He'd been mugged for the cash before, and no doubt had been again. This time with fatal results. The police started dragging the nearby Charles River. They also roughed up some local hoodlums for information. Nothing solid turned up. The last confirmed sighting of George Parkman was at the Harvard Medical Building. Indeed, there were rumors going around that Parkman's dog, who usually accompanied him on debt-collecting rounds, had been seen lingering near the building, as if waiting for his master to emerge. So a few days before Thanksgiving, the police made their way to the medical school to poke around. First, they searched the apartment of the most probable suspect, the lowly janitor who lived in the basement. But nothing turned up. So with great reluctance, the police went to the room next door and knocked on Webster's office door. A magnanimous Webster said he understood and watched as they searched his lab. Or at least most of the lab. No one was brave enough to pick through his private latrine. The police also found a locked closet. And when one cop asked what was inside, Webster explained that this was where he kept explosive chemicals. That ended that, and the police bade the professor goodbye and returned to roughing up lowlifes. Little did the police know, the man who would soon break the case wide open had been right under their noses the whole time. The medical school janitor was named Ephraim Littlefield. Littlefield had a chin-strap beard and a high part in his hair. He looked a bit like a gentle Quaker. But he was also wrapped up in the dirty business of robbing graves to get bodies for Harvard's anatomy classes. Littlefield and his wife lived in an apartment in the medical building's basement. That meant that he could meet grave robbers carrying dead bodies at all hours. And Littlefield was not above a little side action either. After a local doctor botched an abortion once and killed both the mother and the fetus, Littlefield got caught asking for $5 to secretly dispose of the two corpses. This dark commerce made the janitor a prime suspect in Parkman's disappearance, and the police had indeed searched Littlefield's apartment first thing in the medical building. So perhaps fearing that he would be accused, Littlefield began his own investigation over the next few days by following several nagging clues about Dr. Webster. Littlefield's basement apartment was located right next door to Webster's lab. And Littlefield was used to entering and leaving the lab at will to stoke fires and tidy up. Suddenly, though, after Parkman disappeared, Webster began locking the lab door. Littlefield didn't know what to make of that. And yet the furnace inside his lab was still blazing, so hot that Littlefield couldn't even touch the wall on the other side without burning his hand. Even stranger was the turkey. Webster mostly ignored Littlefield as the help, and the professor was known to be in debt. Yet a few days before Thanksgiving, Webster treated the janitor to a succulent eight-pound bird. But why? And why had he made Littlefield trek across town to pick it up, instead of having it delivered like he usually did? Was Webster getting Littlefield out of the way for some reason? Suspicious, Littlefield began poking around. 
One day he slipped through an open window into Webster's lab, but a hasty search found nothing amiss. And that's when Littlefield decided to dig. On Thanksgiving Day, Littlefield found the medical building deserted. So while his eight-pound turkey grew cold, Littlefield grabbed a hatchet and chisel, posted his wife as a lookout, and crept into the vault beneath the basement to hack through the brick wall of the privy. The police had declined to search the professor's latrine. The janitor was not so squeamish. And the next day, when that glistening white pelvis turned up, Littlefield ran immediately to fetch the police. After this, the police finally did a thorough search of Webster's lab. They found bones and dentures in Webster's furnace, as well as shanks of legs in the latrine. Most gruesome of all, one cop began digging through Webster's tea chest, where he kept his beloved mineral collection, the source of all this trouble. Near the bottom, the cop felt something squishy and decidedly unrock-like. It was a gutted-out rib cage with a thigh jammed inside like a human turducken. After Webster's arrest, the public was stunned. A murder at Harvard? As one newspaper put it, in the streets, in the marketplace, at every turn, men greet each other with pale, eager looks and the inquiry, can it be true? But if many people were ready to hang Webster, local prosecutors looked at the evidence and swallowed hard. Making a case here would not be easy. There was a body, sure, but it was headless. Was this even Parkman? After all, corpses were shuttled into and out of the medical building all the time. And if it was Parkman, perhaps someone had killed him elsewhere, or even found him after a natural death and sold the body to the school. The police could not discount Littlefield either. After all, who had found the body? How had he known exactly where to look? And everyone, of course, remembered his willingness to dispose of a dead mother and fetus for five lousy bucks. Perhaps Littlefield had anticipated a reward for Parkman's body, or maybe he was in cahoots with some grave robbers. Any way you sliced it, there was reasonable doubt everywhere. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up? and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture. No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in true accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Given the juiciness of the scandal, Webster's trial in March 1850 was probably the biggest court case in American history to that point. Officials actually built cattle chutes to herd spectators in and out of the courtroom. 60,000 people tromped in over 11 days. The case also exposed fault lines of class and caste within the Boston area. Hardscrabble Bostonians blasted Webster as a psychopath and demanded that he swing. Meanwhile, haughty Cambridgeians sneered at Littlefield as a slimy sneak who had obviously framed his boss. The presiding justice at the trial was novelist Herman Melville's father-in-law. The judge also sat on Harvard's board of overseers, which normally would have been a conflict of interest, except that both the defendant and murder victim were also Harvard alums, as were the lead lawyers for both sides, plus 25 of the witnesses. It was half trial, half reunion. Webster's defense was simple. I'm a Harvard man, and Littlefield is not. So between the two of us, he obviously did it. A bit more materially, Webster's lawyers pointed out that the state had no murder weapon and no idea how Parkman died. Could a jury really convict a man with no weapons and no visible wounds on a corpse, especially in a building full of corpses? Still, the prosecution had one big thing going for it. The body had been found in a medical school, steps away from some of the world's foremost authorities on anatomy. These people were experts at reading the human body, and while they respected Webster as a colleague, the corpse in his latrine told a damning tale. First of all, the anatomist proved the body was Parkman's. Several of them had known Parkman for years, and their practiced eyes recognized the gaunt torso discovered in the tea chest. Similarly, there was Parkman's dentist. He was another Harvard fellow, and he recognized Parkman's scorched false teeth from the furnace, since he had crafted the teeth himself. In fact, the dentist could tell that the teeth had been cooked inside a human head. He explained that if false teeth are cooked in a furnace by themselves, they heat up quickly and pop like popcorn. These teeth had not popped, which implied that they'd been shielded from the heat by something moist, like human flesh. It was a virtuoso display of forensic dentistry. As for who had killed Parkman, the clues pointed to Webster. The anatomist noted that whoever carved up the body had betrayed an expert hand in separating the sternum, ribcage, and collarbone. Given the thick muscles and tendons in the chest, it's difficult to disengage the sternum without cracking it. Only someone with practice dissecting bodies would know where to cut. The ex-Dr. Webster fit that description, while Littlefield the janitor had never wielded a scalpel. Still, Despite all of the evidence against Webster, everyone knew that he would get off, given the pro-Cambridge jury. The trial ended just before 8 p.m. one Saturday, and the jury returned three hours later with the verdict. 
Melville's father-in-law hushed the courtroom and asked them how they found the defendant. Webster had remained aloof throughout the proceedings, betraying no emotion. But when the verdict rang out, guilty, he started backwards as if shot with a gun, said one witness. Then he slumped backward into his chair, stunned. A few yards behind him, Ephraim Littlefield broke down weeping. Because of all the publicity surrounding it, Webster's trial provided a huge boost for forensic science in the United States. Much like the O.J. Simpson trial made people familiar with DNA evidence 150 years later. Equally important, the trial helped rehabilitate the reputation of anatomical science. To find bodies to dissect, anatomists had long been robbing the graves of the poor, and the poor therefore despised them. Sometimes the poor even rioted against the doctors, as you can read about in my book, The Ice Pick Surgeon. But in the Harvard case, the anatomist had condemned the elite professor and exonerated the poor janitor. One observer, in fact, called the trial the fairest in American history. There was never seen a more striking instance of equal and exact justice, the man said. Money, influential friends, able counsel, prayers, petitions, the prestige of a scientific reputation, all of them failed to save him. And make no mistake, Webster did kill Parkman. He finally confessed to this a few days before he was scheduled to hang. Webster said that, during their final, fatal meeting, Parkman had called him some dastardly names and threatened to get him fired, the last step toward financial ruin. So in a fit of rage, Webster had snatched up a nearby log and smashed Parkman's temple in. Parkman crumpled. In a panic, Webster dismembered the body and started burning it. It turned out that the confession was a last-ditch plea for clemency. As Webster told the governor's office, he had committed manslaughter, not premeditated murder, and therefore deserved jail time, not death. But the governor was unmoved, and John White Webster was hanged a few days later. The Parkman-Webster case lived on a long time in people's imaginations, even outside of Boston. When Charles Dickens visited America in 1869, the one place he wanted to see in Boston was the Parkman murder scene, to the grave embarrassment of locals. Along those same lines, when Mark Twain visited the Azores in 1861, he was tickled pink to meet two of Webster's daughters, who had no doubt moved there to escape the notoriety. As for the janitor Ephraim Littlefield, it was less that he could not forget the case and more that people wouldn't let him forget it. Souvenir seekers used to run up to Littlefield in the street and yank strands of his hair out. More happily, Littlefield collected a $3,000 reward from Parkman's family for helping to collar the murderer. After that, he never had to worry again about where his Thanksgiving turkey would come from. This is the Disappearing Spoon podcast, brought to you by the Science History Institute. Find out more about their library, museum, and multimedia magazine at sciencehistory.org. Make sure you check out the Science History Institute's other awesome podcast, Distillations. You can find their in-depth narrative stories and interviews about everything from space junk to sex, drugs, and migraines anywhere you get your podcast. 
and on their website, distillations.org. You can find more incredible stories from my books at samkeen.com. You can also book me as a speaker at your school or event. If you like this podcast, please support it at patreon.com slash disappearingspoon. It costs as little as seven cents per day. You can also get bonus episodes and signed books. Please spread the word to others as well and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places. This episode was written by me, Sam Keen. It was mixed by Jonathan Pfeffer and produced by Mariel Carr and Rigoberto Hernandez. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.